Well, since the book right after 3 John is Jude, thought we'd jump right into that. So we're, it's only one chapter like 3 John, and yet it's going to take us probably several weeks to get through it. Obviously, the author is a man by the name of Jude. Not to be confused with Hey Jude, uh, who came along a lot later, the Beatles song Hey Jude, but it's a great name. The date for the writing of this book is somewhere between 70 and 80 A.D., so this would actually be uh, one of the later books in the New Testament, uh, the latest, of course, being uh, the book Revelation written almost towards the end of the first century, but 70 to 80 A.D. And the letter was written to defend the apostolic faith against false teachings that were arising in the churches. So we can see that this is not a new problem. It's been going on from the earliest days of the New Testament church. What has been called distressing progress was made by what was evolving or emerging, a new form of Gnosticism, not asceticism. Asceticism involves rigorous self-denial, extreme abstinence. I guess you could say that uh, some of the practices of some of the more primitive monks and so forth, like self-flagellation, this type of thing, but asceticism involved rigorous self-denial, extreme abstinence, but and Paul attacked that form of Gnosticism in the book of Colossians. But um, here, we're looking at the exact opposite. The Gnosticism that was emerging towards the end of the first century was called, or is called, antinomianism, which means lawlessness. The Gnostics taught that everything material, everything that we can see, feel, taste, touch, so forth, Everything material was evil, the flesh, but everything spiritual was good. Therefore, they developed uh, their spiritual lives separately or independently from their physical lives, and then they, that enabled them to allow their flesh to do anything it liked. They saw a complete separation between the physical and the spiritual. So over here you could be spiritual, and over here you could just let your flesh run rampant. And so the result was they were flagrantly involved in all kinds of sinful practices, this Gnosticism, this antinomianism, which was creeping into the church at the time that Jude wrote this letter. The first two verses that we'll look at today, Jude 1, 1 and 2. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father God, we once again lift up to you this time that we're going to spend studying your word today. We ask that you would cause your Holy Spirit to reveal things to us, Lord, that are not necessarily hidden here, but things that we need to uh, gain a greater understanding of. Lord, we ask you just to Plant your word deep within our hearts as we study it together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he begins his letter with his introduction, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And of course, that was the way that Paul identified himself and others of the 
New Testament writers, not uh, bragging about their position within the church as apostles or prophets and so forth. Just a bondservant, one sold into servitude. In fact, one definition of bondservant is someone who uh, serves without wages. Basically, you just get a roof over your head, three meals a day, and so forth. But this is really a pretty humble statement concerning that Jude is listed among Jesus' half-brothers in Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, 3. This man, Jude, who wrote this book was actually the half-brother of Jesus Christ. They had the same mother. Obviously different fathers. And, but he mentions himself here. He doesn't mention the fact that he's Jesus' brother. Doesn't throw his weight around, as it were. He mentions himself as being a brother of James. Now, you might get confused if we don't clarify this. This is not the apostle James, but again, another one of Jesus' half-brothers, James, who actually, James, the half-brother of Jesus and brother of Jude, went on to become basically the leader of the church at Jerusalem. In Acts 12, too, we're told that Herod he killed James, the brother of John. Remember Peter, James, and John in a sailboat? You remember that Sunday school song? Anybody remember that? I do. I learned it when I was a kid. And so there was these two sets of brothers who were followers of Christ. Peter and Andrew were brothers, and they were fishermen. James and John were brothers, and they were fishermen. And we're told here in Acts 12, too, that it was James, the brother of John, who was one of the 12 apostles. So early on, in the history of the New Testament church, Herod killed James with the sword. In other words, he was beheaded. So after Acts 12, 2, the apostle James, the brother of John, is in heaven. He's out of the picture as far as the church on earth is concerned. So when we read in Acts 12, 17, Peter had been sprung from jail by the angel he says, motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So this would have been the other James, James, the brother of Jesus. Acts 15, 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Again, we see James taking on that role of leadership in the early New Testament church in Jerusalem, the, the, the home base of the New Testament church. And then finally, Acts 21, 18, the next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. And so the, James, the half-brother of Jesus, became a very prominent figure in the early church. And here Jude identifies this James as his brother. So these are brothers of Jesus who were not believers during his three-year earthly ministry, they were not initially part of his followers, but they went on to become strong believers and strong followers of Christ, and even to the point of one being the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the other writing one of the books of the Bible. James, the bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, or those who are called, that would be believers. Jude is writing to believers. But one question we might ask ourselves, he says, to those who have been called. 
How do we know if we've been called? First of all, I would point out that I believe, according to the Scriptures, that God is calling everyone. We know the classic Scripture. If you only ever hear one Bible verse in your whole life and take it to heart, I guess we would have to say that that would be John 3.16. If you hear John 3.16, if you read it, take it to heart, that's all you need to know to be saved. There's a lot more to know that we can know and learn, but what an important verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So I believe on that verse alone, the basis of that verse alone, we can say everyone is called. But let's look at a couple others. John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, says Jesus. He's talking to the apostles here. It is to your advantage that I go away. He's telling them, I'm going to have to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you and so forth. Where I'm going, you can't go, at least not right now. And it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so when we see here in John 3, 16, John 16, talking about the world, it's talking about all of humanity. God so loved the world. He loves the entire human race. Here we're told that the Holy Spirit will be sent into the world at the point that Christ ascends into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus promised he would not leave the disciples alone, but he would send them the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as a guide, as a teacher. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit for the believer, yes, it's to teach us, to lead us, to guide us, to empower us to live the Christian life. But another role that the Holy Spirit plays in this world is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This also tells me that everyone is called. The whole world, in one way or another, one fashion or another, will hear the message via the Holy Spirit, via the Word of God, and then each person has to make their own decision regarding God, regarding Jesus Christ. Finally, 2 Peter 3.9. Peter's talking about the end times. He's talking about the mockers and the scoffers who are going to make fun of Jesus, make fun of Jesus' followers, and say, oh, yeah, right. Where's the promise of His coming? All things continue on now as they always have. Nothing's changed. You Christians have been saying Jesus is coming for 2,000 years and he hasn't come back yet. But Peter goes on to explain why. And again, this was in the first century, so even then people were becoming impatient. Where's Jesus? I thought he was coming back. But because God does so love the world, he has delayed his coming so that he can fill up his eternal kingdom with as many children as possible second peter 3 9 the lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise that promise to return as some count slackness or slowness also so in this same passage in second peter 3 he talks about the fact that with the lord one day is like a thousand years a thousand years is like a day so from our perspective as we count slackness or slowness 2,000 years seems like a long time. For God, it's a couple days. 
for Jesus, it's a couple of days. But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. So why has Jesus relayed his coming, thus enabling all the mockers and the scoffers to mock him, to mock his followers? Oh, yeah, right, he's not coming. You guys are crazy. No, but he is long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And see, one of the charges that people level against God, well, if God is such a loving God, why does he send people to hell? How many times have we heard that one, right? But God did not create hell for the human race. He created hell for the devil and his angels. God does not send anyone to hell. We have the choice. It's up to us. We, isn't that amazing? Think about that. The creator of all things has given us frail, weak imperfect, sinful human beings, the choice on will we get to spend eternity. You choose. You decide, God says. You know, I'm not willing that you should perish. I don't want you to go to hell. I love you. I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. Here is my message. Here is my evidence. It's your choice. And so I think on the basis of these scriptures, we could spend hours on all the scriptures that I believe prove that everyone is called no one is excluded it's just like your phone keeps ringing you have a choice on whether or not to answer it right and depending on if you have caller id you may choose to answer you may choose not to not answer but god keeps calling throughout our lives in many different ways Maybe you're a non-believer. One day you're channel surfing. You accidentally click onto a Christian TV station. And just so happens that the person speaking catches your attention. You stop to listen for a few moments. You hear the gospel message and lo and behold you decide, you know what? I need God in my life. The radio, the TV, somebody talking at work, somebody sitting behind you in a restaurant and you hear them talking about God, talking about the Bible. There are so many ways that God reaches out to us. He's calling us throughout our lives. Jude is writing to those who are called. And I believe everyone is called. Otherwise, God couldn't say things like, He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God would not have told us in John 3.16 that he so loved the world. He's calling everyone. And I've used this before. I love the way Pastor Chuck Smith would put it. He would use this example of someone saying, well, but what if I'm not called? You know, I'd like to know God, but what if God doesn't want to know me? What if I'm not called? Pastor Chuck would simply say, well, receive Christ, and you'll find out. You're called. John 1.12. But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, to as many as received him. No one's excluded. But notice this again. 
the individual making the choice. What if I'm not called? Well, receive him and find out. And when you receive him, you'll find out you are called. Notice he gives us the right to become children of God. We're not born into this world. A lot of people like to use that very universalist approach, you know, the very new agey approach, the uh, all pathways lead to heaven sort of a thing. And uh, yes, we're all children of God, you know. No, that's not actually the case. In fact, if you remember, Jesus referred to the Pharisees as sons of the devil. We're born into this world in sin. We are separated from God by our sin. Yes, he does love us. God so loved the world. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That means if we want to not perish and we want to have relationship with him, there needs to be a process whereby we repent of our sins. That means to turn and go the other way. We declare to God, I confess to you I'm a sinner. Yes, God, you're right. I know it. And I want to turn from that sin and I want to live my life for you. Please come into my life. Wash me with the precious blood of Christ. Forgive me for my sins. And he promises if we do that, then we will be saved. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. We're not born into this world as children of God. We become children of God when we're born again. How do you become the child of your parents? You're born, right? You're born into this world. How do you become the child of God? You are born again, and you become a child of God. So as we go on, Jude is writing to those who have been called, and then he says sanctified, or one translation says loved. Sanctified or loved by God the Father. To be sanctified means to be set apart for God's holy purposes. But again, NIV says loved by God. Romans 1, 7, Paul uses the same designation for believers in Rome to all who are in Rome, beloved of God. Last week we talked about the fact that we've been called the friends of God, which is an incredible thing to be labeled or tagged as a friend of God, just like Abraham was. Here we see another label those sanctified or loved by God the Father, Romans 1, 7, beloved of God, called to be saints. J. Vernon McGee used to say, you're either a saint or an ain't. We like to develop all kinds of intermediary terminology, don't we? Carnal Christian, backsliding, backslidden Christian, nominal Christian. Nominal Christian really means in name only. So is that really a Christian? I think McGee's got it right. You're a saint or an ain't. But what makes you a saint is not that you're perfect, but again, that you've confessed your sins before God, you've repented, acknowledging your need for a Savior. That's what makes you a saint. If you're a born-again child of God, even if you're the worst of the bunch, (laughs) every believer is at a different place in their, their walk with God, aren't they? And sometimes some get stuck in the mud, stuck in the mire. But whether you're the best of the best or the worst of the worst, what makes you a saint is simply that you've acknowledged your need for a Savior. You receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. And you're a saint. If you've not been born again, 
you're an ain't. The good news is you can add the S on anytime you want. You can go from an ain't to a saint in an instant. But what could be more glorious than to be identified as one loved by God the Father? Well, who do you think you are? Well, I know this, I'm loved by God. Right? It has absolutely nothing to do with who we are or how well we behave. I kind of just lined that out for you. It has everything to do with who He is. And that's maybe where a lot of people get confused. If they aren't believers, they don't quite understand where we're coming from with our faith. They don't understand that it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Him. It's like that hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. 1 John 4.16 We have known and believed the love that God has for us. That's so important. And He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. I love this. John says we have known and believed the love that God has for us, that is so important. I think that's where a lot of people struggle. And you know, we hear people talk about, well, I know God's forgiven me, but I just haven't been able to forgive myself. Really? <laughs> Who said that you had the right or the authority to forgive yourself? Did you, the Bible says only God can forgive sin. But the devil will keep you spinning your wheels on that one as long as you want to. Like a hamster in a cage. Oh, I just can't forgive myself. You know, get over it. God forgave you. That's what matters. And so, we need to get to that place where we, like John can say, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. I would propose to you that's the real problem. When someone says, I haven't been able to forgive myself, you haven't really fully appropriated God's forgiveness. Because if you really know deep inside that you're truly forgiven, that should settle it right there. So I would encourage you, if you're struggling with this, work on that. That you can say like John, I know and I believe the love that God has for me. Uh, without a doubt, His unconditional love. He has forgiven me. And that's the end of it. The end of the old life, the beginning of the new life. So, to those who have been called, sanctified, or loved by God the Father, and preserved in or kept by Jesus Christ. So how does he preserve or keep us? So first, he calls us, he sanctifies us, he sets us apart, he makes his love known to us. But then he is faithful to keep us, to preserve us. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing. But Jesus keeps us in a perpetual state of blamelessness so that we might be found worthy to enter the presence of God when this life is over. How, do we, how does this come about? How is this achieved? Since we know that we still sin, as I've mentioned recently, on a daily basis, I think, 
We try not to as believers. That's our goal. We want to be like Jesus. We don't want to sin, but somehow we probably wind up sinning every day in some fashion. Well, the blamelessness is achieved by his continuous washing of our sins, by his shed blood, and ongoing sanctification by the washing with water of his word. Let's look at that for a moment. First, I want to look at being washed, being cleansed. John 13, 8, remember when Jesus took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around himself, got down on his hands and knees and washed the disciples' feet. Peter objects. John 13, 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I'm too humble for that. What's wrong with that picture, right? Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, at that point, Peter had already made a profession of faith. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, hey, that's not been made known to you, but by men, that's been revealed to you by my Father in heaven, by the Holy Spirit. So I believe at the time of that foot washing on the night of the Last Supper that Peter, you could already say that he'd already been born again. He was a believer, obviously, in Christ. And so when Jesus is washing his feet with water, I believe he's speaking of the daily washing that we all need. Because Peter goes on to say, well, if that's the case, then give me the whole, whole, whole enchilada. Top to bottom, you know, not just the feet. My head and my hands, wash me all. And Jesus says, no, Peter. What a, he's a man of extremes, you know. Walks on water, briefly. <laughs> no, Jesus said, you just, you just need your feet washed. And I believe what Jesus was telling him, you've, you've been born again, your sins have been forgiven, but as we go through life, we get dirty. Every day, something soils us. And we need to be washed. We need to be cleansed. Not for salvation, but for maintenance. For this keeping that we just read about. This preserving until that day when we see him face to face. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. In that passage, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that the human marriage relationship is a mirror image of our relationship with God. And he talks about Christ washing his bride, the church, with the water of his word. The word of God has a washing or a cleansing effect upon us. That's why we need to partake of it daily to get that washing. And that's part of what Christ uses to preserve us and keep us until that day when we stand before him. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. When it talks about sprinkling in the Old Testament, the priest would sprinkle the the blood of the sacrificial animals upon the altar and upon the people. Hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, the spiritual analogy is the pure water of the Word of God. So this is how we are washed and cleansed. Confession of sin, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ on our hearts, the washing of our bodies, with the pure water of God's word. 
And then we talk about these terms preserved or kept. 1 Corinthians 1.8 in the NIV says, He will keep you strong till the end. You ever wonder, man, I don't know how I'm going to make it. You ever have those thoughts? You know, I want to keep on keeping on. I want to follow God. I want to serve God. I don't want to turn away. I don't want to turn back. But, man, I don't know how I'm going to make it. He will keep you strong to the end. He is our rock. He is our fortress. So that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's important to really work on keeping a close relationship with God. He will keep you strong to the end. When we allow ourselves to drift away, to drift apart from Him. Not that we've stopped believing, but that we've just not given that. It's kind of like in a marriage relationship. If you don't give enough time and attention to your mate, your spouse, I mean, that's the classic line, well, we just drifted apart. How many times have you heard that one? Why in the world did you guys break up? Why did you get a divorce? Well, we just drifted apart, right? Well, we can drift apart from God, too. Not that... We're no, not that we're no longer saved, not that he no longer loves us, not that we no longer love him. But it's important to draw near to him on a daily basis, and he in turn will keep us strong to the end. Jude 1.24, later in this very book that we're starting today. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling... And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Where we often go wrong is we rely on ourselves instead of relying upon God. Oh, I can handle this one. If it gets really tough, God, I'll call you. I'll let you know, right? No, he is the one who's able to keep us from stumbling or falling. And to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So again the need to stay close to him, and the promise is he'll keep you from falling. Anytime we stumble or fall, you can pretty much take it to the bank. God was trying to protect us, show us, tell us, and we just didn't listen, right? God will never steer us wrong, but sometimes we think we can do it on our own. Finally, Revelation 3.10, promise to a certain segment of the church. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Here Jesus is referring specifically to the tribulation. The last seven years of this present age when God is going to pour out his wrath on an unbelieving world. And so this is a particular promise spoken to a particular group of people that will be alive at the time the tribulation begins at the time that the antichrist rises to power it's quite possible that many most or all of us in this room might be a part of this particular promise and what is the promise he says i will keep you from the hour let me read it i want to get it exactly right I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. So this is a universal thing. This is not an isolated situation. 
He's speaking of a specific time, the tribulation, an hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. He promises to keep us from that. He says this hour of trial will be to test those who dwell on the earth. And there will be those during the tribulation who do not get to partake in the rapture of the church, but they will then turn their lives to Christ and most likely be martyred because of it. That's the test. When push comes to shove, what will those people do upon the earth who have initially rejected God, initially rejected Christ, and have now missed out on the catching of the way of the saints? Most will fail the test. Some will pass the test. But he promises that those who persevere, those who hang in there, keep fighting the good fight of the faith, will be kept from the hour of trial. Another scripture that argues very strongly, I believe, in favor of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Some have taught a partial rapture. In other words, because it says here, because you've kept my command to persevere. Well, what about maybe some believers who haven't persevered? Maybe they have drifted away from God. Maybe they haven't kept in close relationship like they should have. Maybe they actually have drifted off into a, a life of uh, ongoing sinful activity. There's a lot of gray areas here. Some believe that there'll be a partial rapture, that those who have persevered, those who have stayed completely true to God will go, and those who haven't won't. I prefer not to find out. I prefer to go in the initial launch. How about you? <laughs> I'd rather ask God when I get to heaven, so did we all get to come or are there some still down there? <laughs> it's kind of like Avi Lipkin's joke about the, the word goes out to the um, uh, you know, Israeli uh, security or whatever that the Messiah is up on the Mount of Olives. And so this guy, one of the directors of Israeli security, tells his underling, I want you to go up to the Mount of Olives and I want you to ask him this question. Sir, is this your first trip to Israel? <laughs> That's an Avi Lipkin joke. We know what the answer is, don't we? No, I've been here before. Okay, verse 2. <laughs> As we continue with Jude's opening or his greeting, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, those who are called. Mercy, as you probably know, we've talked about it many times. The definition of mercy is not getting what we deserve. According to the Bible, we deserve eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death. I love this verse from James 2.13. This is just the last part of it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. So anyone who's fearful of impending judgment, you just need to call out to God for mercy. But that's one side of the coin. The other side is grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It means you don't deserve it. Getting what you don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation. It's the free gift of God, and he gives it freely to all who ask. The other side of the coin, mercy, not getting what we deserve. So Jude 
says mercy to you. Because of God's mercy, as we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of our souls, we will not face God's judgment for our sins. Mercy, then peace. And this, as we know, is not the same kind of peace that the world thinks. The world thinks that peace just simply means absence of conflict. If we're not at war with someone, then we're at peace. But the peace that comes from being in right relationship with God and from knowing that He has everything under control. And there are so many people, perhaps in the millions, who would give a testimony that even though everything seemed to be going right in their life, something was missing. There was an emptiness. There was a lack of peace. Even though there wasn't any external turmoil to identify, it still wasn't there. Why? Because until we come into right relationship with God, then we don't truly know peace. The peace that comes from being in right relationship with God and from knowing that He has everything under control. And again, even as believers, we struggle with that sometimes. But that's where the real peace comes from. Jesus said, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. Again, as He's going to be going to heaven, to make intercession for us before the Father. And he told us he would send us the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so Jude, as part of his greeting, is imparting to his readers mercy, peace, and finally, Love, agape. The kind of unconditional love God exhibited by sending His Son to die on the cross. The kind of unconditional love Jesus exhibited in submitting Himself to the will of the Father by allowing evil men to murder Him so that our sins might be forgiven. That is the ultimate example and definition of love. Agape love, unconditional love, God's love. And these are the things that He desires for His readers Paul said that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And as I like to emphasize all the time, God's focus is on the eternal, the spiritual, much more so than the material. And there's no limit to God's resources when it comes to these things. Mercy, peace, love. But sometimes we short change ourselves by focusing on the earthly, the material, instead of the spiritual. Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's other books about those who have suffered for the kingdom of God and the incredible richness that they've experienced in the midst of their suffering when totally deprived of all the things that you and I just take for granted every day. There are depths and riches spiritual riches available to us that we often miss out on, fail to take hold of. But these are the things that Jude desires for his readers. Mercy, peace, and love. But not only that, he says, may these things be multiplied to you or be yours in abundance. Sometimes it seems like as believers we kind of exhibit this attitude that, well, yeah, I know, 
I got to suffer for God. It's a rough life, but somebody's got to live it. And certainly there are those in the world who are suffering greatly for their faith, much more so than you and I are here in America. And there are those here in America that are suffering for Christ. But the point is, God didn't just promise us abundance in eternity. This is where the, the earthly, the material, and the spiritual intersect. I don't believe that Jesus came just to give us a little taste of mercy, peace, and love, just enough to wet our whistle or taunt us like a carrot dangled in front of us. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, The thief does not come, and he's talking about Satan here, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I've told you so many times, how can you tell whether someone or something is of God or of the devil? God is pro-life. Satan is pro-death. It's that simple. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So whenever you see these kinds of activities, and again, it's not just in the material realm. It's in the realm of the mind, the will, the emotions, the, the, uh, the spiritual, the thievery. Satan wants to rob your joy, does he not? Satan wants to steal your confidence that you're truly a child of God, that you're truly born again. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So anytime you see those kinds of activities going on, even if it's involving someone who professes to be a believer... But the fruit is theft, death, and destruction. you got a problem. That's not from God. Best case scenario, that person needs to repent. Worst case scenario, they may not be a believer at all. What did Jesus say? By their feelings and emotions, you will know them. Is that what he said? By the size of their Bible, you will know them. By how many Christian bumper stickers they have, you will know them. Did he say that? What did he say? By their fruits, you shall know them. Now, again, we're all sinners saved by grace. On a daily basis, any one of us could look pretty gnarly. (laughs) But again, what we're talking about, God is pro-life, Satan is pro-death. Satan comes with to steal, to kill, and destroy When you see that kind of activity going on, that's not God. The last part of the verse, Jesus says, I've come, that they, they being anybody who wants it, again, is to as many as received him. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Just like Jude. I want Mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied to you or to be yours in abundance. And Jesus wasn't just talking about the great by and by. He's talking about now and for all eternity, abundant life in Christ. Now, again, Jesus doesn't mean material prosperity. He doesn't mean worldly recognition he's talking about the mercy the peace the love kingdom of god being a matter 
of righteousness, peace, and joy. These are the things that he says he came to give us in abundance because these things transcend any earthly situation. You can be the poorest of the poor. And honestly, if you have to choose poorest of the poor versus richest of the rich, you should probably choose poorest of the poor. Because the thing that is most likely to separate you from God is not poverty, it's prosperity. You can study it down through human history. You can study in the Bible. You can study it with the nation of Israel. You can study it with the nation of America, United States of America. When people are struggling, they tend to be closer to God than when we're doing too well. Because then we begin to forget about him. We begin to ignore him. That's why you see some of your greatest revivals in times of war. World War I, World War II. Very briefly after the Twin Towers plane crashes, for a few weeks everybody was all about God again, remember? As soon as that blew over, right back to the same old, same old. Let me read that from the NIV. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. More abundantly or to the full. But if we're locked into this mentality that our lives can only be full and abundant when we have lots of material things, I've, I mentioned this recently, I think, then you're never satisfied. It's never enough. Do you ever ask yourself, why do these people who have so much money just keep on trying to make more? <laughs> you know, if you're a millionaire, you want to be a billionaire. If you're a billionaire, you want to be a gazillionaire. <laughs> it's never enough. But you know, the one thing that we can desire more and more of, and it's okay, is these things. Mercy, peace, and love. Joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. That's one thing we can never get enough, and it's okay to desire those things because those things are from God. Those things are of God. Those are the things that will sustain us as Jesus promises to preserve us, to keep us until that day when we stand before him. The worst that can happen if you run out of food is you die and go to heaven, right? And that's a promotion. The worst that can happen if you run out of these other things is you might not be ready for him when he comes. That's the big issue. So I would say this. Yes, life does involve trials and tribulations. We all know that. But through the mercy, peace, and love of God that he promises to us, that abundant life that Christ came to give us, we can experience life to the full right here on earth. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for the wonderful and glorious promises in your word. Lord, we know that as Jude wrote to his readers, which we are part of that group, you have preserved his words for us that we might study them some 2,000 years later. And so as he's writing to those who are called, that includes... Hopefully all of us here today, but certainly most of us. As he writes to those who were called, and in his greeting, 
extends to each one. Mercy, peace, and love multiplied, abundant. Lord, it's all there for us if we want it, if we will take hold of it. The joy, the peace, the righteousness, the mercy, the peace, the love, all those things of your kingdom that you've promised to those who would put their faith in you, the abundant life that Jesus says he came to bring us. Lord, we ask for your help. We know that oftentimes the only reason we miss out on these things is because we don't seek after them. We seek after the wrong things. We seek after the things of this world. Lord, forgive us if we've made light of the wonderful, glorious riches of your eternal kingdom and have traded them off for things that do not last, things that are temporary. But we do thank you that you promised to wash us, to cleanse us, and to keep us, to preserve us. Lord, it's a good thing because we could never do it on our own. And we ask you to help us to remember that on a daily basis, that you are our hope. We should never put our hope in the flesh, in our own abilities, our own strength. In fact, Lord, you told the Apostle Paul that through his weakness, your strength would be made known. Help us to always remember that. That, Lord, we do have many weaknesses. We should not ignore them, deny them. We just need to own up to them and acknowledge that if we yield ourselves over to you, you can make your strength known through our weaknesses, Father. And Paul said, so I glory in my weaknesses because then God's strength is shown forth in my life. May that be true of each one of us. And Lord, as we close, if there's anyone who needs prayer today, needs ministry of encouragement, strength, wisdom, guidance, physical healing, whatever it might be, Lord, again, we talked about the fact that your resources are unlimited. Lord, help us not to leave this place today until we have taken care of those issues that need to be taken care of. And we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon each one as we sing our final song and people come forward for prayer. We ask that you would draw them by your Spirit, those who need that special touch today that you are here to give. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.